0: Amen. Wonderful singing. Thank you, Jake and Emily, for your uh, leadership and help with the music. And uh, what a blessing it has been already uh, to worship the Lord in singing. And uh, we are so thankful for God's blessings throughout the year. And uh, thank you for uh, the many guests and returning guests who are here with us today. If you're visiting here uh, with us for the first time, uh, if you don't mind taking a a moment to fill out a guest card and uh, make sure that uh, goes in the, the offering box there in the back. That way we have record of your visit with us. Uh, we'd greatly appreciate that. And uh, we have been blessed to have many uh, guests uh, in the last uh, several months. And uh, I have a stack of, of cards in my office and, and uh, trying to uh, uh, keep up with them. Many uh, are coming regularly, and we thank you so much. And we appreciate uh, the regular attendance of our church family. And in times like these, uh, we need, we need the, the Lord. We need each other. Uh, we need our church. Uh, just thinking, thinking about the, the tragedies that we have seen as we go into the holidays, and uh, I don't want to be uh, a 24-hour news, that's not my job, that's not my, uh, uh, my goal here uh, this morning, but uh, just once again uh, reminded of, of how uh, people are, are just in, in desperation, they're hopeless, and they, they aren't finding the answers in uh, the materialism of this world and the humanism of this world. Uh, the world is teaching us that we find our truth, our authentic self, somewhere inside of ourself, and yet people are looking inside and they're finding themselves empty. But we are so thankful that we have Christ, who is our all. We just sang about Christ uh, being our completion, complete in thee, and he is our sufficiency. And uh, so much uh, in those words that we, we just sang uh, that cause our heart to rejoice. John chapter number 12, once again this morning, John chapter number 12, we have come from the triumphal entry to this place where Jesus is now in Jerusalem in the midst of this crowd of people who have gathered for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Passover feast, the Passover, the actual Passover meal is later in this week, Jesus will Uh, Celebrate that with his disciples and what we call the Last Supper or the Lord's Table. And from out of that comes the communion service that we uh, observe like we did last Sunday. And so here's Jesus in his final public time with the people publicly. And he is there at that Passover, soon to be the Passover lamb, the lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world. He will celebrate with his disciples on what is likely that Thursday night of that week, the Passover slain, the Passover lamb slain on Friday, the same time that Jesus is crucified for us. This is the background. He's come from Bethany, he's come into Jerusalem by the triumphal entry, he's cleansed the temple, he's cursed the unfruitful fig tree, he's now in the midst of the people there. Remember, there has already been a order that if by the by the religious leaders, there has been this order of condemnation that if you know where Jesus is to tell them so they can come and arrest him because they want to execute him. They want to murder him. There's quite a stir already about Jesus and the Greeks, the Gentiles that we looked at last week, they wanted to see Jesus. And they came across Philip, and obviously it was providential, but at the same time, there was something about Philip that we talked about last week that said he had been with Jesus. They knew there was something about him. Not just being from Galilee and maybe having a Galilean dialect or accent or something, but the fact that Philip had something different about him. I can't help but think that there was something distinct about Philip that the Greeks knew he would know where Jesus is. And a reminder again of how we are making an impression, how we have an influence. Some of us had that opportunity even this past week among family and friends at Thanksgiving and entering into Christmas. How many more opportunities are we going to have to tell the truth about Christmas? Yes, we may have a tree, or 26 or 27. We may have presents underneath the trees. We may have decorations. And those are all fun, and we're enjoying the time, food, and shopping. Maybe not so much the shopping, but uh, enjoying the, 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 the activities around Christmas. But once again, may we point to the real reason for the season. And many in this day, here in John 12... At the Passover, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they were missing the real reason for the season. Jesus was right there in their midst, the Messiah. And many of them, they wanted a political ruler. They wanted a Jesus of their own making. As we've talked about before, but there was something about these Greeks, they seemed to genuinely want to know who Jesus is, they found Philip, Philip found Andrew, and together they went to Jesus. And there, Jesus gives this sermon, this discourse, and really, it's his last public sermon or proclamation or discourse that's recorded. He would then go to the Lord's table, the Last Supper, as we refer to it, that Passover meal with his disciples, and then from there to the Garden of Gethsemane, and be arrested and then taken to be crucified. But we come here in John 12 and we looked there in verse 27 last week as we came to the end of last week's message. Now is my soul troubled, Jesus says, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. We looked at several paradoxes of Christianity and we went through those and how Death preceded glorification, a paradox. How can death be then bookended with glorification? But we see that paradox. We see that in order for there to be the glory of heaven, the glory of salvation, there had to be the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ for our sins. And Jesus is now at this point where even his own soul, in his his humanity, in his humanness, the burden of becoming sin for us, this, this troubled Jesus. It's not that he was in conflict with the will of God. We know in Matthew he said, "...if it be your will, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless not my will but thine be done." It wasn't that Jesus was arguing with God. It wasn't like he was being in some rebellious position, like sometimes our children or our grandchildren will get into an argument with us because they don't want to do what we tell them to do. It wasn't like that. It wasn't that Jesus was debating with God about his plan or his purpose, but in his humanness, in his humanity, the burden of becoming sin for us of experiencing the wrath of God of in, in, in a way that I cannot fully comprehend or explain of God being estranged from God. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus would cry out on the cross. His soul was troubled. There was an agitation at the thought of becoming sin for us, of the wrath of God being poured out on him. In his humanity, this caused some affliction to his soul. He was sinless. He was innocent, undefiled. Yet he would be our substitute and take the penalty for our sin. And he says at the end of verse 27, For this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. Here we see again Jesus committing himself to the Father's will knowing it would take Him to the cross, knowing he would, be the penalt- he would pay the penalty, be the substitute for us, and pay the penalty for our sin. At this point, we read there in verse 28 that there was a voice from heaven in an answer to Christ's prayer, Father, glorify Thy name. The Father responds, then came there a voice from heaven saying, I have, glo- I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. This voice from heaven declared that God glorifies His redemption plan. He is glorifying, He is confirming Christ as our redemption for our sin. Here we see the confirmation of the Father. We see the confirmation of the Father. We have seen this before, Matthew 3. In verse number 16, at Jesus' baptism, where John the Baptist publicly baptized Jesus, in Matthew 3 and verse 16, in the early days of Jesus' public ministry, we read in Matthew 3 and verse 16, and Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, baptism by immersion. If I can put in a little plug there for Baptist distinction. And Jesus, when he was baptized, went up straightway out of the water, and lo, the heavens were opened unto him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him. And lo, a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Early in Jesus' public ministry, the Father confirms the mission, the redemption plan that he has Given to his Son, Jesus Christ, who was fulfilling the perfect will of God. But that confirmation comes again in Matthew 17, in verse number 5, at the Mount of Transfiguration, where we read, While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Once again, the Father publicly confirms Jesus Christ and His redemption plan and Christ as His Son fulfilling God's redemption plan and paying the penalty for our sin, going to the cross and being our substitute. And then here we are again at the end of Christ's earthly ministry. So at the beginning, somewhere towards the middle to the latter third of Jesus' earthly ministry, and now here at the end, the Father makes another public proclamation confirming Christ as His Son, fulfilling God's will and God's redemption plan to die on the cross for our sins and pay sin's penalty for us. The people were confused. Verse 29, The people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. Others said an angel spake to him. Jesus said in verse 30, This voice came not because of me, but for your sakes. So there seems to be that the spiritually minded understood what this was all about. But the natural man, the unspiritual, they did not. They took it as some angelic voice or maybe a thunderstorm, thunder, But Jesus was saying, this was for your sakes. This was for you to once again understand who I am and why I am here. I can't help but make a little bit of an indirect application here, a secondary application. I see the, the Father, God the Father, confirming His Son, and I can't help but think of the importance of us as dads. In confirming our sons in the will of God, And pointing them to the Savior and pointing them to the will of God and pointing them to the Word of God and being the right example of doing the will of God humbly and graciously, depending upon the Lord, and as they see our dependence upon God, as they see us fulfilling the will of God and being obedient, then as they make decisions in the will of God and in obedience, we confirm them in that. How important that is, especially in our culture where many of these mass shootings, I think there are 27 that have been recorded, I forget, in the in, in, in so many years. I, I don't remember the exact survey. And all 27 of them were by young men or younger men who had lost the meaning of life, who had lost their purpose of life, who didn't know why they were here, where they were going. Oftentimes where a dad was... Out in orbit, distanced from them, who was not engaged in their life. And if he was, he was not any kind of a respectable father who taught them in the ways of God and the Bible. And these young men are in desperation, murdering, because they have nothing else to live for. How sad. We're in a crisis of masculinity in our culture today, and it's a burden. On my heart, not just because I have three boys, but because I see the need for godly men right here at this church and all around the world. Godly men who will make a decision to obey the word of God, even when it's hard, even when it means somebody in my own family won't like me. I'm going to do what's right. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We need some backbone. Backbone. I mean, men with spines, not jellyfish, not milk toast, husbands and fathers. But fathers who will even be willing to humbly apologize when we get it wrong, but say, this is what God says in His Word, this is how we're going to do it, and we're going to obey the Lord, and we're going to do His will, even if it hurts, even if it's hard. God the Father confirmed Christ. Christ was the perfectly obedient Son Fulfilling all the will of God, even to the cross. And we see the Father confirming Him at the beginning, toward the middle, or last third of His ministry, and also at the end, right before He goes to the cross. We see that Jesus Christ is the perfect and the full fulfillment of all the prophecy, as we already looked at a little bit in the triumphal entry. And we see that all coming to this hour to fulfillment at this point in history. It's incredible, the providence of God. It's incredible, the redemption plan of God. And we see the confirmation of the Father in it. But then we see in verses 30 through 33, we see the judgment of the cross. The judgment of the cross. A little bit of a negative here, but it's really not a negative when we think about In its entirety, and we really look at it from the right perspective. We see here the salvation that Christ is offering to the world. But that salvation, when it is rejected, becomes a judgment. Verse 30, excuse me, verse 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. We see the judgment of the world. The judgment of the cross is, first of all, the judgment of the world there in verse 31. That word judgment is the word that we get, our word crisis. So this moment, this moment in history, represents the moment of the crucifixion here in these final days before Christ is crucified. We see this moment representing the greatest crisis in all of human history. uh, Some of us who are history buffs, we point to various wars and conflicts. We might point to the Protestant Reformation. We might point to lots of different places in history that were crisis moments. Yes, we feel like maybe the last six, eight, ten months, two and a half, three years, (laughs) we've been in crisis mode to some degree, here in the world. And we sense a power struggle. The kingdoms of darkness opposing the kingdom of light, God's kingdom. We sense that even now, maybe more so than we ever have. But here is a moment of crisis, the greatest crisis in all of human history. See, the crucifixion wasn't an accident, It's a critical point of decision for all people. The judgment of the world, the judgment of the cross, is that the acceptance or rejection of Christ determines the eternal destiny of every man and woman for all time, of all ages. This is the moment. See, Christ came to save He said that he didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Christ came to save, but he comes as judge based upon one's decision to either accept or reject Jesus Christ as one's Savior. One who rejects the free gift of salvation comes under judgment. We exercise judgment in all kinds of areas. I think of it again as a parent. There's something that we want our children to do around the house. They do it or they don't do it. We exercise a judgment. There is a consequence for not doing it or not doing it the way they were told. Or there is a compliment, a pat on the back, thank you, something that says you did it right. You did what you were told. Thank you for doing that. We exercise judgment all the time. I know judgment is considered a bad word in our day and age. I've talked about a church on the west side of Indianapolis that we passed many, many times. No judging, just Jesus was often on the sign outside the church. And I couldn't help but I wanted to, not that I would do it, but I wanted to spray paint on that sign, 2 Corinthians 5 and verse number 10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. The cross of Christ is a of crisis, of judgment. We either reject or we accept Christ as our Savior. For those who reject Him, there's the consequence, the judgment of eternal death. For those who trust Christ as their Savior, who believe on Him, repenting of one's sins and putting one's faith and trust in Christ for their salvation, His death, burial, and resurrection, that judgment is to eternal life. We also see in verse 31 Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Christ's death, burial, and resurrection would mark the absolute defeat of Satan for all eternity. Glory be to God. Hallelujah. We would be of all men most miserable if we did not have victory in Jesus. And we'll sing that tonight. One of the things I'm excited about in our new hymnal, is we have the hymn, Victory in Jesus. And I'm looking forward to singing that tonight. Because we have victory in Jesus through Christ. Thanks be unto God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58. In Revelation 12 and verse number 10, it is declared, and I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God. And the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down. Satan is a defeated foe. Now, Satan doesn't go down easily. I'm not a boxing fan, and I certainly don't like UFC. I think that is one of the... I'm getting scowls from one of my boys already. I think UFC is disgusting. I can't see why two people with hardly any protection would beat each other to a bloody pulp. I don't get it. Okay, But one thing about a boxer or a UFC fighter or somebody in that kind of contest, those who are truly in there for the fight to win, they often go down very, very hard. They fight to the bitter end. They expend all of their energy, all of their resources. And can I say that Satan, as the god of this world, as the prince of the power of the air, is fighting. He is a defeated foe, but he wants to go down with as many souls taken into an eternal hell He wants to defeat as many Christians, mar as many testimonies. He is called the accuser of the brethren. And none of us like gossip. We believe way too much gossip. We practice way too much gossip. It's one of the biggest problems in Baptist churches and in churches and in Christianity is we gossip. We are so guilty of it. None of us like gossip being said about us. Rumors. Many times we believe things, we're not a part of the solution, we're not a part of the problem, and we hear things and people have spin machines, like the politicians. And we'll make somebody feel or look as bad as they possibly can because we can't stand them. And gossip, we, I dealt with it every year as a principal of a school. Gossip that would be sometimes based on very little, if any, fact And it was damaging, it was devastating, it hurt feelings, and I would sometimes end up in long conversations with students, and sometimes I would get that call from the parent and then have a meeting, and I'd be trying to unravel months sometimes, and years of gossip. And Satan is gossiping against us, accusing, saying all kinds of horrible things about us, like he did Job. That man, he's only serving you because you've blessed him, you've made him wealthy. And isn't it a glorious thing to know that Satan's mouth of accusation is shut up because we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and no weapon formed against us shall prosper. I know that's specifically referring to Israel. But the application to us that the accuser, his mouth will be stopped the things that he says against believers, those things are shut down by the blood of Jesus Christ, the righteousness that we are clothed in, not our righteousness, but his righteousness. So that once saved, always saved. That's not a license to sin. That's not a liberty for us to go out and do whatever we want. No, that actually would be an evidence that we're not born again. But the facts. That we are in him, protects us from the God of this world and the prince of the power of the air. He is a defeated foe. Satan is cast down, we read here in verse 31. And then in verse 32, we see the drawing of men. Verse 32, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men unto me. We've seen the confirmation of the Father. We've seen the judgment of the cross, which is a judgment regarding salvation, whether we accept or we reject Jesus Christ. We see the defeat of Satan, but we see in verse 32, we see also the drawing of men. We read here this word draw, and we see this phrase, all men. So this drawing is God's work at salvation, at at the crucifixion, the appeal of salvation, the invitation of salvation is to all men without distinction. Literally, it means all people. It means from every people group. In other words, Christ is the point in which all of the peoples of the world will gather. It doesn't mean that all will be saved, but it means that there will be people saved from both Jews and from Gentile people groups. Revelation 5, in verse number 9, describes it this way And hast redeemed us to God by thy blood out of every kindred, and tongue, and people, and nation. Christ is lifted up. That's referring to the crucifixion. And he says, if I be lifted up, I draw all men unto myself. There will be people saved from every people group, from every ethnicity, from every kindred, tongue, people, and nation. It also speaks to the invitation to the whole world that every person is accountable before God for their acceptance or their rejection of Jesus Christ as their Savior. I know that sounds sometimes difficult when we think about the 1040 window. We think of places around the world where people are in darkness. But God has revealed himself in general revelation in three distinct ways that give people a taste of God, a knowledge of God that holds them accountable that ultimately they are responsible for. Each and every one of us are responsible before God for how we respond to Jesus Christ. We can talk about creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth His handiwork. Creation is a general revelation of God. It's a testimony to God, to who He is. Even His eternal power and Godhead are evident in creation. Creation. That's one evidence in general revelation. A second one is the conscience. The fact that God has given us a moral compass. It needs to be educated by the Bible. We're not to follow Jiminy Cricket's advice and let the conscience be your guide because the conscience can be defiled. It can be seared. The conscience can be uneducated or miseducated. Not educated biblically. And then there's a third evidence in general revelation. And I refer to it as consciousness. It's the soul. It's the eternal part of man that God has put within each and every one of us. That eternal link to God. That's why people from all time, in every culture, all around the world, throughout the ages, have been religious. That's why people today, in surveys... 87% 87% in some surveys are considering themselves to be spiritual people. But the percentages are much lower when it comes to being religious, practicing some kind of religion. What does that say? I think the other 13% are just in denial because 100% of us are spiritual beings because we have an eternal soul. We all want to know why we're here, where we came from, where we're going. There is a desperate Search for the meaning of life, and we have the answer right here in the Word of God, found in Jesus Christ. God is drawing all men unto himself through Christ in the crucifixion. We read elsewhere in, I forget now if it's 1st or 2nd Corinthians, But God is in the world reconciling us to himself. And we are given the ministry of reconciliation. We are ambassadors for Christ. We wouldn't be saved if God had not drawn us. And I'm not here to get into all of the theological systems and arguments about that. That's not my point at all. My point is that the scripture says that if I be lifted up, I would draw all men unto myself. Every person is responsible before God for their acceptance or their rejection of Jesus Christ. There's no excuse. We see this drawing of men in verse 32. But then in verses 34 through 36, we see the identity of Christ We've seen the confirmation of the Father, we've seen the judgment of the cross, we've seen the drawing of men, but then we see the identity of Christ. Let's drop down to verse 33, this he said, signifying what death he should die, speaking of his crucifixion. The people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever, and how sayest thou, the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? This phrase, Son of Man, is used 83 times in the Gospels. It is a Messianic phrase, a Messianic title for Christ, used in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus uses this title 83 times in the Gospels. It was a title of humility that identified him with mankind, yet it was a unique Title, a unique title that only he used. And this question was one that Christ had even asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16 Whom do men say that I am? And Peter declared, and similarly, Martha declared in John 11 Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son, of the living God. Martha proclaimed very similarly in John 11. Christ had clearly identified himself as the Messiah. The Old Testament prophesied clearly regarding the Messiah. But see, there was a tradition, there was a misunderstanding of Scripture that the Messiah would never die. So when we read here, the people, therefore, that stood by and heard it said that it thundered. I'm sorry, I went too, back, too, went too far. Verse 34, the people answered him, we have heard out of the law that Christ abideth forever. The Messiah, Christ, the anointed one, abideth forever. How sayest thou the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? What they are talking about is a misunderstanding about the eternal nature of the Messiah. Isaiah 9 and verse number 7, a verse we often refer to at Christmas. Of the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. So then we also see in Ezekiel 37 in verse 25 that God promised a Descendant of David would rule forever. Psalm 89, verses 35 through 37, indicate the same. But what were the people looking for? They were looking for a political ruler. Those who had not trusted Christ as their Savior, who did not see Him as the Messiah, who must suffer, who overlooked Isaiah 53 and many other prophetic passages that speak to the Messiah suffering and dying and being the vicarious atonement for our sins, overlooking even the Passover lamb that they were about to offer, even overlooking the symbolisms and the meanings of the offerings, And all that they were doing, even in that feast, who had been there year after year, three times the Jewish males were to report to Jerusalem to come and gather for significant feast days that all spoke to the Messiah who would die for our sins. As John the Baptist again proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God, we take it away the sin of the world. They were missing the meaning they were missing the true Messiah. Who is this Son of Man? He should live forever. How can you talk about dying? Don't you understand? The true Messiah, he would bring a kingdom, he would throw off the Roman rule, he would be a political ruler, and the Jews would reign over the world. And there were people that day who wanted to be the right hand in the kingdom, including Judas. And they wanted to be in power. They were missing the message regarding their sin and their need for the Savior. They were right there missing all that Jesus was trying to tell them regarding their need to repent of their sins and trust Him for their salvation. But isn't that what people do today? Cherry-pick verses? Reinterpret verses? Take Scripture and Rip it out of context. That's why it's so important that we interpret Scripture by Scripture. It's why it's so important that we preach and teach the whole counsel of God here. We have a lot of believers. They know about six verses. John 3, 16 and about five others. And they throw them out. Romans 8 and verse 28. That kind of covers, that's the blanket verse for everything, right? We know that God will work all things together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to His purpose. But we don't like verse 29, where we're told that that conforming is into the image of his son. We don't like it when that conforming says to not be conformed to this world. There are all kinds of cherry-picked verses that are out there, and people have them on their social media, and they have them on their walls. And people, I, I've, known, I've known someone, a friend of our family, and she's just she continues to be overwhelmed by the amount of scripture that my mom knows. How do you know all that scripture? Why do we even need to know all that scripture? I've lived all these years and I've only known these handful of verses. Whoever taught you all that? Statements like that, even these many years later. And my mom keeps coming back to the word of God, keeps coming back, this is what we've been taught, this is what our preacher has taught, this is what I've learned in my devotions. And how many religious people They don't know the Bible. They know a handful of verses that they can interpret and reinterpret and they can pull out like the dictionary on the shelf, like Google on their phone. And oh yeah, that verse, yeah, that might apply here. And here's these people. The Messiah is in their midst. They've pulled out these random verses and they've totally missed the prophetic fulfillment in Jesus Christ, who is the Passover lamb will die for their sins, the sins of the whole world. We see the Son of Man here, and then we see that He is the light of the world. The identity of Christ is the Son of Man and is the light of the world. Verse 35, Then Jesus said unto them, Yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light that ye may be the children of light. These things spake Jesus and departed and did hide himself from them. All the way down to the very end of Jesus's public ministry. He is calling out for people to be saved. See the light, come to the light. This is no doubt a reference to Jesus being the light of the world that he stated back in John 8 in verse number 12. And Jesus is once again calling us from the darkness to the light. It's a call of salvation, but it's also a reminder to us as believers to be walking in the light as he is in the light. What are we doing today? Are we walking in the light? Or is our Christian walk often overshadowed with the darkness and the shadows of sin? We don't have discernment. We don't even know which way is up sometimes when it comes to just simple acts of obedience and faithfulness because we're so catechized and taught by the world, by the darkness. And I don't know about you. But I love coming to church and not just because I'm a preacher. I love being around the people of God and I love being in God's word because it does so much for my soul. And being around all of you people helps me. Because I'm a sinner. I'm a mess. And I need to be around God's people regularly, consistently. And I need to be in God's Word. Personally, I was taught in Bible college and seminary. You give out of the overflow of what God is doing in your life. And if I ever come to church, if I ever preach God's Word, and I do it from the dregs of the barrel, shame on me. And I will be responsible before God for that. But we need In this dark world where we have so much filth, it's like walking sometimes through a sewer, a dirty ditch, when we go through this life. And Jesus once again, yes, it's a call to salvation, but it's also a call to us to continually, faithfully, consistently walk in the lights, In the light of God's word. And to be faithful and obedient. To his commands, to his principles, and to his promises. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your word so clearly speaks to us. That your life, that your lessons, your words get to the very nitty-gritty of our heart. That pierce even to the joints and the marrow and the thoughts and the intents of our hearts, Lord. Help us to walk in the light of you and your word. Help us, Lord, to share the light of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world around us. Lord, as you gave in this last final public proclamation, this last final public sermon, appealing, crying out, For those there in the hearing of your words that day and through the preservation, inspiration of God's word to us today, calling out for salvation, to believe, to receive Christ, to not turn away, but to turn to Christ. Lord, if there's someone here who has not turned to you in saving faith, may today be the day that they repent of their sins and place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Lord, as believers, Lord, do a work in our hearts. Help us, Lord, to be renewed in our walk in the light of you, of your word, in faithful and obedience. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jake is going to come and lead us. If we'll take our hymnals, and for our closing hymn, we'll turn to 352. We'll stand, if you would, and turn to hymn number 352. We'll sing stanza three of Now I Belong to Jesus. If God has spoken to your heart, you can do business with the Lord even as we sing. If we can help you in any way after the service, we'd be happy to do so. Jake's going to come and lead us. 352, Now I Belong to Jesus, stanza number 3.